spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. sorts of nerdy goodness. It's episode 215 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and this week, going to be talking about our coverage of Tidewater Comic Con 2018 that happened a couple of weeks ago. You know, of course, had to talk to Mary Mouser last week, so we decided to move the Tidewater Comic Con coverage to this week, and that means we're going to forego our normal what we're reading, but we will still give our spoiler-filled review of the Deadpool movie for this week in Geek Tamit. So that means no nerd news this week. We're also going to have know what we're reading this week. Still have plenty of great interviews. Peter David joined me. David Fielding, of course, from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Magdalene Visaggio. So many more. I mean, there's a ton of interviews on the show this week. And coming up next, what we're reading, you'll hear a couple of those interviews. And how about we also talk about what the comics looked like at Tidewater Comic Con and the setup there. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book artist Eric Donovan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's a special Tidewater Comic Con edition of what we're reading this week, so I guess we're definitely dragging out long boxes for this because there was a ton of them in the vendor section at Tidewater Comic Con. I mean, you go to cons, and you don't see a whole lot of places to get comics anymore, do you? I mean, it's st- it's slowly starting to fade away a little bit. And there's plenty of local shops in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where the Down and Nerdy Podcast studios are here. So, you know, we've got plenty of options. But there were also shops from, you know, surrounding areas in, in, in Virginia as well that travel in from Tidewater, for Tidewater Comic Con. So there are a bevy of long boxes. And I mean, you're, you're also going to have the toys and collectibles and stuff like that. And there was a ton of that. I thought it was a really good mix between comics and collectibles actually in the vendor section. I didn't feel like we were overwhelmed by one particular thing. The other thing that I really loved the Tidewater Comic Con did this year, it was, it seemed like there was a cutback, a major cutback on the quote unquote print walls where you just see somebody selling a whole bunch of prints. And I will say this, And to Tidewater Comic Con's credit, a lot of the folks that were selling prints, or at least a few that I saw, there were folks sketching in those booths. So, I mean, I've always said if I go to a con, you want me to buy one of your prints, show me that you actually did it. Show me that you can sketch this. Show me you can sketch something that looks similar to the stuff that you're selling and I'm more apt to buy a print from you because, you know, you kind of, if you're a con rookie, then you kind of learn the hard way that maybe not all of these prints are legit. So I just like to see some sort of an example of this is your work that you're selling. That's kind of all I ask for. So there was some of that going on this year, and I really, really did like that a lot. Also, I mean, there were some local comics as well. As a matter of fact, I didn't catch the name of the of, of the of the company at the time, but there was a gentleman that was the author of a new series of comics that kind of dealt with superheroes in African American history, and I thought that, that was really really interesting. So, I mean, there was just it's unique stuff, you know. There's a lot of cons that you can go to and get the same old same old, but there were plenty of unique things at Tidewater Comic Con that I loved. And so many chances to just 
get comics. And I mean, there were some, there are plenty of dollar boxes and everything was uh, the graphic novels. There was great sales on those. So, I mean, if you were a comic book lover, just looking to fill out a run or something, I mean, Tidewater Comic-Con definitely helped you do that. But of course there are plenty of stars that came out to Tidewater Comic-Con. And I want to start off with Magdalene Visaggio. We talked to her about so many of her great books. Let's hear what she had to say. Tidewater Comic-Con 2018, and a name that you're going to know from a lot of great books, like Eternity Girl, maybe you remember her from Kim and Kim, and so much more stuff that's coming up as well. It's Magdalene Visaggio. Mags, how you doing? I'm doing okay today. Allergies are kicking up pretty bad, but I'm getting through. You and me both, what's the deal? Spring? <laughs> Are we even allowed to have spring anymore? Don't we just go from winter right to summer now? Yes, we did in New York this year. But, I don't know, it's been pretty gross. Well, welcome to Virginia Beach then. <laughs> I'm from Virginia, so I know how it is. There you go. Well, I mean, Eternity Girl has been such a great book. I think it's been the best book that Young Animals put out so far. So what made you come up with the idea, the concept for the book itself? Well, um, so the first thing I did for Young Animal was a three-page Element Girl short um, in Shade the Changer Girl number four, I want to say. And I've always been really interested in the character of Eternity Girl, of Element Girl in terms of like how she was treated in, in Sandman. Um, and I was really interested in like, further exploring sort of like, well, what would it mean like if with all these universal reboots, she came back to life again? And how would she feel about that? It's like, she, I can't even kill myself when like a god helps me. Um, because it just gets undone. And that got me thinking a lot about, you know, cycles of birth and rebirth and, like, some bunch of metaphysical bullshit. Um, but more importantly, it got me thinking a lot about sort of my own experience with depression and suicidality. And I was like, okay, I want to do a book that sort of examines the question of depression, not from, like, a, a critical perspective or from a, it's, you know, like they do in Sandman where she, she just, she kills herself and that's the happy ending. I wanted to do a book that was in a lot of ways about sort of what it feels like and what sort of how depression can spiral, but also that sort of points toward recovery. Um, so more than anything else, that was sort of the impetus for the book because I wanted to do really an Element Girl book where Element Girl learns how to keep living. And uh, then for a variety of reasons, we ultimately decided to go with an original character. Um, it freed up a lot of uh, sort of narrative territory. Um, but that's basically the long and short of it. I think that there's an identity crisis thing in there as well because of her trying to keep her human form or not keep her human form. And then you bring the villain element in there and Madam Adam as well. Talk about kind of their relationship and their dynamic in the first few issues because it's really kind of interesting to me. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, well, Madam Adam's whole role is sort of to serve as a sort of a twisted kind of psychopomp. So like a psychopomp is um, like the ferryman on the river sticks or... You know, basically anyone who's sort of bridging the gap between life and death. And so the thing about um, Madam Adam is that she's taking that role, but it's very much twisted and subverted. She's she's not trying to, like, ferry her to death as part of, like, an eternal order. She's trying to break down the eternal order by ferrying this impossible person who can't die to her death. And the only way to do that is to bring down everything. Um, she's very anarchistic, she's very iconoclastic. Uh, Madam Adam's whole purpose is to tear down what she sees as an arbitrary system that only inflicts suffering on people. 
And to me, that was really important because I don't like it when villains are mustache twirling, snidely whiplashes. Right. Um, I want villains who have motives that make sense, and I want them to be the hero in their own story. And so we can look at what Madame Adam is doing, and we can be like, well, that's a terrible idea. But I think that she has a point, even if we don't agree with what she right. wants to do. She has a point. And so her role is sort of to, I guess, make explicit what's implicit to Carolyn in terms of how she feels about her, her life and where she is. Um, what Madame Adam does is basically put it in very stark terms that also serve her goals and then tries to very much, she's very much using Attorney Girl over the course of the series. And another relation, you talk about the depression aspect of the book, which I think is done very, very well. One thing I love that you did was that you brought in a character like Danny, who was her friend, who's someone who's trying to help her deal with that. How important was it for you to bring up that aspect as well for anyone who might be able, might be trying to help someone that's dealing with issues like this? Um, I mean, I'm not trying to inform anyone in terms of like how to help people deal with depression. My whole point in bringing in Danny was the fact that depression can be cruel. <laughs> You know, like Danny is trying to help and doesn't know how, and Carolyn is not having it. You know, Carolyn feels like she's her project. Carolyn um, is lashing out because she's not happy. Um, and I so that was a dynamic I really wanted, was where you've got the, the, these two people who are trying to connect and they're just missing each other. Um, and I met. That sort of lack of contact is uh, really only making things worse. Now, Max, before I let you go, you're also doing a fantastic job with Transformers versus Visionaries as well. It's been an amazing book for IDW. But i got to ask you, how much of a hard time are people still giving you about killing Cop, and why do they not know that's not just your decision? Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad for the first couple weeks, but it's, it's, di it's mostly died down. Um, I don't understand why they think that that's a thing that IDW have just let me done on my yeah, own. Yeah, because it was all your idea, right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was IDW decided that fairly early on in the process. There was a lot of discussion about who they wanted to kill, because they wanted to kill somebody. And they originally wanted to kill, actually, this Visionaries character, Merklin, and he was pretty vital to the plot that I had already... Yeah, I was going to say. Already, but, like, I'd already sold them the story. And they were like, well, we want to kill Merklin. I'm like, but we, we can't. We can't kill Merklin. And so then there was a whole discussion of which I was not even part. They informed me who would die the same way they informed me that Merklin would die. There you go, Transformers fans. Straight from the writer herself. And, I mean, so many great books that you have out. I mean, just, just find her on Twitter. Google it. She's got a ton of great books. Kim and Kim as well. It's Magdalene Visaggio. Max, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. So great to catch up with Magdalene Visaggio and get a chance to ask her about all the great books that she has out right now. Seriously, guys, if you don't have at least one Magdalene Visaggio book in your pool right now, you're going to want to fix that really quickly. Another guy that's been doing some great work, Tracy Yardley, got to talk to him about Sonic and Cosmo. Let's hear what he had to say. It's Tidewater Comic Con 2018, and this is a book we've actually reviewed a couple of times on the show already. The first issue and the most recent issue as well. And the artist for the first couple of issues actually is Tracy Yardley. Tracy, how you doing? I'm doing really well. It's been a great show so far. So I know that you've been doing Sonic for a while now, different publishers. What has it been like since the move to IDW? It's been pretty good. Uh, things have worked out pretty well. Uh, working with Joe Hughes and David Marriott over there at IDW, they've been really 
uh, easy to work with, great guys. Um, you know, really, it's been a really smooth transition working from Archie to them. It's not a lot different on my end. You know, <laughs> I, I do the work and I send it in, and uh, that's about it, really. It's, it's been pretty smooth, pretty easy, pretty good. You actually do a couple of different books with Ian Flynn, not just Sonic, but also Cosmo as well. What's he like to work with? Oh, Ian's great. He's really a lot of fun. He has like, great ideas all the time. And uh, it's really fun whenever I, if I have something that I think would work differently or better, you know, he's always he's always cool with me making tweaks or minor changes to his stuff. What's it like having rotating artists on this book? Because you did the first couple of issues and then you have somebody else taking over in the next issue. What's that like for you as an artist? Do you like to kind of continue on as much as possible or do you like kind of getting a break every now and then? Well, I prefer to do, uh, you know, to work every month that I can, you know, and so far uh, it's been pretty steady with, since I've been doing Cosmo and uh, Sonic at the same time. I've, always, I've been having plenty of work for the last few months, and it's been great. Uh, as far as working uh, on Sonic and having the rotating artists, that hasn't caused me any issues yet because the first four issues were weekly, so they all basically came out at the same exact time. Uh, I just finished issue number five. I'm currently working on issue number six. Uh, seven and eight are being taken care of by somebody else, and it's likely that I will probably be on nine, but I don't know. And if there's any kind of gap in there, I'm not sure what I'll do. Uh, you know, IDW might have some cover work for me or something. I don't know. It's, it's a little early in the game to say how it's going to be, how, um, how frequent and how consistent the work will be. I, I don't know yet. What's it like introducing a new character into the Sonogram Tells the Lemur? Who, you know, it's, you've been working, for, working with Sonic for a while, but now we have a new character. What's it like to have somebody new jump into the fray? Well, uh, I, I haven't done any issues with Tangle in it yet. Uh, she's pretty fun to draw, although I really haven't, I haven't drawn her in any official capacity. <laughs> she was in issue number four, I think, which was done by the yep. uh, incredibly talented Evan Stanley. And, um, well, I don't know. It's always fun to see new characters because everybody, you know, always kind of flips out. Yay, new character, you know. But we did. We introduced a whole lot of people, um, or I should say animals, I guess, <laughs> in, the, in the old Archie book. So, and I, I, I got the, uh, the privilege of designing or helping to design a lot of those. So it's always cool. It's, it's really neat, you know. Speaking of cool, talk about Cosmo because I remember when we reviewed issue one, it's just such a fun book. So what's it like to not only be drawing for Archie Comics but doing something a little bit different like Cosmo? It's really been a lot of fun. Vin, uh, Vin Lovallo, the editor on the book, is he's a super great guy, super talented. Always great, lots of great ideas. He did all the uh, the character designs for all these uh, Cosmo and all the characters, uh, along with some of the villains and stuff. Uh, but I, you know, I got to design spaceships and, and uh, some of the, the the environments that they that they interact with uh, in outer space, the, the theme park on the moon, and uh, arcade planet that they go to in issue number five, which is a lot of fun. And uh, again, once again, uh, because I was doing Sonic and, and Cosmo at the same time, I, I kind of ran into a little bit of scheduling problems. So once again, the yeah. amazing Evan Stanley helped me out on issue number five, and it's some, some really amazing uh, video game sequences for that book. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's really a little unusual because I had always traditionally worked, you know, on paper with pencil, uh, you know, and uh, I would send the, my pencils off to an inker to be inked. But with Cosmo, I've been working digitally on, on the iPad using a, um, an app called Comic Draw that I, uh, I found out about from a, a, a friend of mine. Um, oh, no, I can't remember his name. That's terrible of me. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, he, he, was doing some, uh, he was doing some stuff on the Comic Draw app for Marvel and for uh, Action Lab, and it was really, really great. And um, 
uh, Alex Ogle. Sorry, Alex. My mind blank there. Alex Ogle. He's a really, he's a really, another really talented guy. He does some great stuff. And I thought, you know, I really want to move, transition into this digital stuff because uh, working traditionally is great, and I love it. But I would like to, you know, I'd like to do my a lot more of my own inks and maybe some colors in the future. Uh, maybe not, not interior colors, but more cover stuff. You know, I mean, it's just working digitally is so much faster and. It's easier to, to make changes, you know, to move things around, resize. Um, so, obviously, if you're working on pencil and paper, you have to erase it and completely redraw it. It just takes a lot of time that way. Before I let you go, Tracy, do you think it would be cool to see these two worlds cross over at some point? <laughs> that would be awesome. I'd love that. But uh, now that they're on different uh, different uh, publishing houses, I don't know if that's going to happen. But you never know. You never know. They tend to play nice every now and then. So it could happen. Yeah, yeah. IDW does a lot of crossovers with DC and other people, so who knows? Sure, why not? There you go. Check out his work on Sonic for IDW and Cosmo for Archie Comics as well. It's Tracy Yardley. Tracy, thanks for taking the time at Tidewater Comic Con. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. A little bit of insight there on some great books on what we're reading this week, a special Tidewater Comic-Con edition. Up next, going to take a break from the con for just a second because we have to give our spoiler-filled review of the Deadpool sequel, Deadpool 2, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer and co-creator of Deadpool, Fabian Niciasa, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to take a break from our Tidewater Comic-Con coverage. Break that fourth well and talk about... The Deadpool sequel, Deadpool 2, that came out. And yes, this is going to be spoiler-filled from here on out. I mean, Deadpool spoiled his own movie throughout it. We might as well go ahead and do the same thing in our review, right? So before we get back to Tidewater Comic-Con, let's go ahead and talk about Deadpool 2. I'm not going to go through, again, every little beat of it because you probably saw it. And I I am going to give you spoilers, but I'm not going to go through every little bit of the movie. The first thing that I will say that I really loved about Deadpool 2 was, at least I felt anyway, that it was completely different from the first movie. I mean, sure, yeah, it was funny, and it still had its moments, and there were some callbacks to the first movie. First of all, Toddler Legs Deadpool was hilarious. (laughs) The basic instinct kind of homage scene, also very hilarious. But at the same time, it was a very different movie. It was a movie about kind of like what hero, what kind of a hero Deadpool really wanted to be and what his identity was now going forward. They, you know, you try the whole, you know, trying out for the X-Men thing that didn't work out. You try the contract thing. It seemed like that didn't really work out. And then once his, once, once Vanessa gets taken away from him, it's, it just seems like he's trying to find out himself who he wants to be. And everybody else is trying to figure out who he's going to be as well. So, and then you enter the whole storyline that was the whole part of this, and that was Fire Fist, which was played by who was played by Julian Dennison, who I thought did a fantastic job. And I love the fact that you know he said I wanted to be a superhero, but you see, you know, there's no overweight superheroes. And then there's the joke about you know Hollywood not accepting that and things like that. But at the same time, it's like this kid feels like he didn't get a fair shake from the beginning. And now look at the attitude that he has beyond the fact that, yeah, he got tortured where he was and everything. I mean, this movie was a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. And then you see the shared tragedy between Wade Wilson and Cable because we see what happens to Cable's family and then come to find out, oh, by the way, Fire Fist was responsible for that because, you know, he gets his first kill and everything kind of snowballs 
down from there. And then you've got the p- tug and pull between Cable and Deadpool over that over Firefist, over the kid. The, and Deadpool decides he doesn't want anything anything to happen to this kid after I mean the tragic scenes of how Vanessa dies and then Deadpool's decided that you know he's kind of done but she said that you know it's not your time yet several times and he had to figure out what it is he was supposed to do to kind of become the man that he needed to be and to move on from this so I thought that that was a really really neat storyline again I don't want to go into every little beat of the story I do want to talk about something though that's been talked about in other reviews. I'm not going to call anybody out or be specific here. But wh- I've heard some comments that, you know, they wasted the X-Force in this movie. I don't actually think that they did. I realize that the original X-Force, you know, you get you know, you get a ragtag group together, right? And then basically everybody dies. And, and that to me was kind of funny in a way. It was like, really, that is such a Deadpool movie thing to do is to kill everybody and, you know, you, you know, Zeitgeist and Shatterstar and Bedlam and, and they all die except for Domino because, you know, Locke and the whole Locke's not a superpower thing. I think that that's been debated by some fans who aren't educated enough about Domino. And then you come to find out even Deadpool kind of plays that role. The realization is that, huh, yeah, she's kind of a badass after all, but I will get to her a little bit later on. We'll definitely be talking about Domino, but I think this movie didn't waste the X-Force. This movie actually formed the X-Force. It gave us the origin of the X-Force at the end of the movie. Not at the beginning, not at the middle. No, no, that very end scene where Cable decides to turn back the clock, save Deadpool, and to stay in this time. That is when the X-Force is actually born. It wasn't in the beginning of the it wasn't in the middle of the movie when he's going to try and save the kid. That wasn't the X-Force. You call it what it wants. That's just how the name was born. The actual team was born in that moment. So I actually think it was a pretty brilliant way to go ahead and do that. I thought that that was really cool that you know that's how we're going to move now into the X-Force movies. So I think that, that was a really neat idea. Before I talk about Domino, I want to talk about Cable and Josh Brolin doing an absolutely amazing job. Loved the joke about him being dark and did he come from the DC Universe. That was very funny. But Josh Brolin, I don't want to say he stole the show, but I enjoyed Josh Brolin's Cable so, so much. Maybe even more than his Thanos. And his Thanos was really, really good. But there was just something about... Cable and the way Josh Brolin portrayed that character, this deep, dark, sad, angry character, but then, you know, starts to kind of come out of his shell a little bit towards the end of the movie. I thought that it was really great, and the brooding performance that he gave is something that you knew Josh Brolin would be good at anyway. But to me, just took Cable up another notch. And again, I think the look of Cable looked fantastic on the screen. And then we come to the one that I wished we had seen more of in this movie, or at least earlier on, and that was Domino. Zazie Beetz, my goodness, she was amazing. Not just a badass, and not just and not just the way the things kind of fell in place for her, and that being her ability, but just the way she carried herself and her attitude and the line. And she would have like the perfect line at the perfect time, and a lot of that credits to the writers. Of the movie, but also the way that she delivers it. it. The chemistry between between her and Ryan Reynolds with Deadpool, I thought, 
was great. And this gives me a lot of hope going forward for this little back and forth. You know, once we have an X-Force movie, which I'm sure the Deadpool will be a part of, even though, you know, we're talking about how there probably won't be a Deadpool 3. And we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, I guess. But now I know. If I get to see more Domino, maybe even a Domino solo movie at some point, and don't give me that rolling eye look like, how could that possibly work? If you saw this movie and didn't think that Zazzy Beats could carry a Domino movie, I don't know what you were watching because you're nuts. I think that she could absolutely hold her own in her own movie. And you figure out the storyline from there as far as I'm concerned. What you could do with that doesn't even matter to me. I think that she was just that solid in this performance that I think it would be easy for her to go ahead and carry a movie. So, I, I mean, I think that she was fantastic in every possible aspect that she could have been. And and here's the deal, guys. Do we need a Deadpool 3 at this point? Can we just carry on with X-Force? You're still going to get Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. Does it matter if it is a Deadpool movie? I'm not sure it does. Let's just see how this whole X-Force thing plays out, and then let's decide if we're going to have another Deadpool movie. It doesn't mean it can't have Deadpool elements in it. We could still have, you know, Dupinder in an X-Force movie, right? And that ending little sequence for him where he finally gets what he wants, I'm not. I'm really not going to spoil that. I know this is spoiler filled, but I, I don't want to spoil it. That moment there at the end might have been one of the best moments for me. I, th- I just thought that that was hilarious, that little moment that he got to have. Also, Negasonic t- Teenage Warhead, the whole story with her and Yukio, I thought was another another really funny thing. I thought that they portrayed that very very well, and it wasn't you know it wasn't a huge part of the story, but it was right there, kind of when you needed it to be in a, in a certain sense, right? And I loved every time Yukio and Deadpool and Wade Wilson interacted with each other. I just thought that the, I just had a smile on my face. I just thought that it was really really hilarious, and the way that he was kind of using that to kind of poke a Negasonic teenage warhead. And kind of, you know, prod at her and, you know, kind of joke her a little bit about it. I thought that that was really funny, too. So it's just now I will say there are there is one particular criticism I have of this movie. And it was that whereas in the first movie, I thought pretty much every joke landed. I thought every joke absolutely was a knock out of the park. Everything was funny. This movie, not so much. I think the Deadpool to some of the jokes Definitely missed. I'm not going to point out specific examples here, but I just think that it wasn't as funny as the first one, but I think that it was a very different movie too. I think that it's kind of hard for me to make that a criticism because they were making this a different movie. And sure, they could have done the same exact thing that they did with the first one, make it a laugh a minute, by still, but still give me a decent story. And I probably still would have enjoyed it, but I kind of enjoyed the fact that they took a risk this time and let the jokes fall where they may, but decide to tell a deeper and, you know, more meaningful story this time around. Sure, the first one was personal too, but this one just felt a little bit more deep and meaningful because of everything that went down and Deadpool actually having to deal with a tragedy in his life that he can't control that doesn't have to do with his own person. It had to do with somebody that he loved and that he lost. And for somebody who uses humor like that, and Cable talks about this, you know, using humor to hide the pain, so we explore that in this movie because of what happens. And I thought that was a really neat thing. And the, and everything that happened with Colossus. And my favorite part, I think, was Juggernaut. I, 
I love the fact that we got Juggernaut in this movie. I thought it was a perfect choice. I was hoping it would be Juggernaut. I was able to avoid that spoiler before I saw the movie. I, I do everything I can to avoid spoilers. I know it's hard me doing this and you know following the news and stuff. It's hard for me to avoid them, but I was able to avoid that. I was so pumped. I thought the look was fine. If anybody had a problem with the look of Juggernaut, I don't know what else you could have wanted. You're never really going to get a costume that's straight out of the comics, are you? I mean, the Deadpool costume's pretty close, but you're never really going to get a costume that's straight out of the comics, so I don't know what you'd complain about there. I liked the the action sequences there. I love that he rips him in half, rips Deadpool in half. I thought that was pretty funny. The battle between he and Colossus I thought was really, really good. If anything, maybe I could have gotten a little bit more of a fight from him. Maybe I thought they might have taken him down a little bit too quickly and not used him early enough in the movie, actually. Again, even if you want to call that a criticism, because I love how they took him down, and it certainly took quite a few X-Men to take him down, so it's not like he went down without a fight, but I think you could have made it a little more menacing because there was never really any point in this movie where I thought things were really going to go south and get bad for the heroes. I mean, there were some perilous moments, sure, and and I think the... I wasn't even surprised when Vanessa died, really, and, and maybe that is one of the detriments of this movie as well, is that nothing really shocked me other than me being happy when I saw Cable or when I saw Juggernaut or when I saw Domino and getting that cool moment of, oh, this is finally happening sort of thing. I wasn't shocked by anything else and I didn't really feel like the heroes were at any point in any kind of peril or things that were going to go south really, really fast. So, again, I don't know if that's necessarily a criticism. I'm not sure that, that we really got a villain in this movie, and maybe that was a problem too, I don't know, because Francis was so great in the first one, I felt like we had a legit villain, and and maybe, you know, in a ridiculous sort of way, you felt like something might go wrong there too as well, right? But so, I'm, I think that if the movie suffered from anything else, it was that, but again, this was by no means a perfect movie, and I don't think you had the ability to match what you did with the first one. I think the first one was so great, in everything that it did and everything that it had to be, and it left us with such a good feeling, I don't think that any sequel was going to measure up, no matter what they did. So I think that them going completely different from the first one was the right thing to do, and it was a solid effort. I I will say that much. I certainly didn't dislike it. I didn't think it was the greatest movie ever either, but I think it falls somewhere along those lines. So, I mean, if I'm going to give this a rating... I think that I will give this, let me see, eight bloodstained teddy bears out of 10. Is that too dark? Did I take it too far? Uh, okay, well, eight out of 10 for, if, if for that matter. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Deadpool sequel, Deadpool 2. But before I move on to our next set of interviews from Tidewater Comic Con and Nerd News and something that Peter David told me, while I was chatting with him at Tidewater Comic Con this year. How about since we're talking about Deadpool, I got a chance to chat with Deadpool artists and worked on some cable as well. Riley Brown about a lot of Deadpool stuff and something he's working on with Fabian Niciesa, one of the co-creators of Deadpool. So we'll hear from Riley Brown and then move into a special Nerd News edition of Tidewater Comic Con 2018. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Tidewater Comic Con 2018. We're having a great time and because we get to talk to guys like this. Of course, you know him from Deadpool a whole lot. It's Riley Brown. Riley, what's up, buddy? Hey, man. How you doing? Doing really good. Now, speaking of Deadpool, you've been doing Deadpool books for a long, long time. Do you sort of have a favorite issue, a favorite arc that you've worked on? 
Uh, uh, there was a lot of good wines. Um, I really enjoyed my uh, the last the last issue of the Cable and Deadpool series issue 50, which was my first time getting to write the character. Cause and so I was able to just do whatever the heck I wanted. So I, you know, that's where like the dinosaurs get the alien symbiotes and Deadpool has to team up with all sorts of other superheroes. So that one was a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed the whole Dracula's Gauntlet storyline where we introduced Shikla. Uh, and then uh, the split second storyline was really fun too. Where, especially there's one issue where uh, Cable is trying to prevent Deadpool from killing somebody. And so they have to keep rewinding time. Cause, so they rewind time to stop it from happening. But then Deadpool accidentally kills somebody else. <laughs> And they keep doing that. It's like Groundhog Day, but, you know, more violent and funny. So. You know what's cool is that when you're an artist, is it interesting to be able to kind of take the other side of the perspective as well, go ahead and write a book? Because that's not something that happens a lot. So is it cool when you get an opportunity to do that? Yeah, it's a lot of fun because uh, you just get more control and you don't have as many people telling you what to do. And you know that you know better than them. So this time, I had no one to blame for all the stupid story decisions but myself. <laughs> So is there a character other than Deadpool that's been in the books that you would have really liked to see and highlight a little bit more, maybe even get their own book at some point? Uh, you mean a Deadpool character? That yeah, some, somebody that we, you, we'd usually see in a Deadpool book. Uh, I think that Shikla would be really cool as a main character for a series. I think she could probably handle it. I'd love to see Bob. I, I think there <laughs> needs to be at least a Bob miniseries, if not an ongoing. I, I've got a great pitch for it. If anybody wants to read it, I'm happy to share it. Um, so Marvel, if you're paying attention. Yeah. And I really wish, there's this character we introduced in, uh, uh, in the Dracula's Gauntlet storyline. Marcus, the ultimate warrior. Or, or the ult is, that, is he the ultimate? What's his name? Well, Marcus is just what we called him. He's a uh, werewolf, centaur, symbiote. Uh, and I just think he's so much fun and you can do so much stupid stuff with him and I really want to see other writers pick him up and use him for some stories Riley before I let you go you've got a brand new project coming out with Fabian Nicier so why don't you tell people about that anybody that doesn't know uh, yeah we got a comic called Outrage coming out uh, it's about you know when someone posts something online and you wish you could just reach across the internet and smack them all the time <laughs> it's about a guy that can do that and uh, it's going to be a digital story coming out on Webtoon, uh, Line Webtoon, and um, it's going to come out every week. I think we're launching sometime this summer, uh, and I'm really psyched about it. it. The chapters we have done so far look great, um, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, Riley, you've got so much great stuff that you already have out. Can't wait to read that. And keep sketching. you got a Deadpool sketch going on right now. Keep doing your thing, man. Thanks, man. It's great talking to you. Yeah, this is Flash Gordon, Sam Jones, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Normally this is when it would be time for nerd news, but because this is a special Tidewater Comic-Con edition of the show this week, I want to take this time to talk about some of the cosplays that I saw and some of the other stuff that was going on at Tidewater Comic-Con. As far as cosplays went, I will say that there were a lot of Spider-Man a lot of Star-Lord with Avengers Infinity War. I guess I can't be surprised about that. Not a ton of Deadpool or Harley Quinn, and that's typically typically what you see when you go to cons, but not this year. Although I, I will say, purely from a selfish standpoint, and I know that we took a lot of pictures, purely from a selfish standpoint, I got to say my favorite cosplay was The Beast from The Magician. Somebody cosplayed it as The Beast, and it was just, it was so simple 
but at the same time, it was done so well, so unique. You, you know, you had the moths covering the face. That was the kind of look of the beast that he had. And I just thought it was really well done. Hadn't seen a magician's cosplay before. So I was super psyched to see that. That's one of the things I love about cosplay. Making it unique. Give me something that I haven't seen before. There was a Jedi Nick Fury kind of fusion cosplay that I saw that I thought was really neat. And there's some steampunk stuff and some great Fallout cosplays it well. So, I mean, Virginia Beach, Virginia and Tidewater Comic Con definitely does cosplay right. I did not see who won the costume contest, but there was like a a wing, a, a, a wolf with giant bat wings that I'm sure was a huge contender. And there were some Overwatch cosplays I thought were really good as well. So didn't see who won the contest, but there were certainly plenty of deserving candidates. Also, as outside of the cosplay, once you headed over toward Artist Alley and some of the vendors, there were some really cool vendors as well. I want to give a shout-out to Bella Books and Toys. And Matt and Blair do such a great job there, and a, a lot of great Funko Pops and other stuff, just a good variety of stuff. Pixel Freaks was another one that I really love because you know I love 8-bit art. If you want to look up Pixel Freaks, I thought that they had some cool stuff as well. And just it's just cool to see. There was a chalk artist out there in Artist Alley. You know, somebody just sketching in chalk, which I thought was neat. It would scare me to to death that it would get, you know, faded away at some point or even blown away because, let's face it, it's chalk. But, I mean, it it was just such stunning art. It was like a landscape scene and a storm going on in the background. It was really, really cool. So that's one of the things I like to see when I go to an artist alley is, is that unique stuff and something that I would not expect to see, but yet there it is right there. And there was a lot of great custom-made stuff too, not just stuff that, you know, it was like iron-on or anything like that. No, this was like custom-made, you know, jewelry pieces and belts. There was somebody that made cosplay props, which I thought was brilliant selling cosplay props at a con. So bravo to them for that. So that's kind of one of the things that I really liked about like about Tidewater Comic Con is the large variety of stuff that you can find in Artist Alley and throughout the the actual con itself. I mean, they had some cool vehicles there as well. You, you know, you know, you had a DeLorean, you had the car from from uh, Supernatural, you had uh, the throne from Game of Thrones, stuff like that. You know, stuff you kind of expect to see at a con, but so much unique stuff sprinkled in as well. I did get one little nugget of nerd news out of one of the interviews that I did there, and it comes from Peter David. I'm sure that's a name that you know from The Incredible Hulk and a bunch of other stuff, but when you hear the interview, he gives us a very interesting piece of news about the Young Justice Outsiders series that's coming. Take a listen. It's Tidewater Comic Con 2018, and this is a guy we've wanted to talk to for a long, long time. You'll probably know him from, I mean, any number of things, really. The Incredible Hulk specifically. It's Peter David. How you doing? I'm doing fine. It's been a great convention. I mean, you're really known for The Incredible Hulk quite a bit. What kind of questions do you get from fans, especially here at cons, about the book that you that the books that you've worked on? Well, at conventions, mostly the question I get is, will you sign my comic books, and how much does it cost to have a comic book signed? Those are pretty much the two major questions. What do you, Did you have a favorite arc that you worked on, or, or when you look back, you go, man, I was really proud of that run? Oh, well, thank you very much. I mean, I enjoyed writing all of it. Um, if I had to choose a favorite Hulk story, it would probably be Future Imperfect, which was a... a a two-issue extended story that was penciled by George Perez. It looks absolutely gorgeous. It's one of my favorite stories. 
How do you go into when you're going through the process of getting ready to create any book, not just the Incredible Hulk, and you have to have an artist work on that book? What's the process like for you? What do you look for in an artist for a specific story? Generally, I don't. The artist is usually chosen by the editors. They'll send me samples of his work so I can get a feel for what his characters, what his characters look like. But yeah, generally the the uh, the uh, artists are chosen by the editor. The one exception to this was Future Imperfect. Actually, um, I was bringing my daughter. Do you know what docks in a box are? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was bringing my daughter Gwen to a docks in a box. She's gotten a chin scratch or something like that. And sitting there in the docks in a box is George Perez. <laughs> now. Future Imperfect originally began as a project for an Italian artist who then dropped out of the thing after I'd already come up with the story. But Bobby Chase really wanted to go ahead and do the story even without him, so we started looking around for artists. When I ran into George, George says to me, you know, Peter, I've always wanted to work with you on something. And I said, well, I have this story, and I explained Future Imperfect, and George said, I'm on. And I, when I got home, I immediately called Bobby Chase and I said, we have an artist for Future Imperfect. She said, warily, who? I said, George Perez. She says, okay, we're good. We were just talking about Spider-Man 29.9 a couple seconds ago when somebody came up to your table. Is that a character that you'd like to see featured even more in maybe an animated series or possibly even a feature? I know they've got the Miles Morales Spider-Verse movie coming out not too long from now. Uh, yeah, he actually has been shown up. Has shown up in the animated series, in the in the uh, most recent Spider-Man animated series. They did uh, a storyline involving Spider-Man from a number of multiverses, and uh, and Miguel was in there, which I was very very pleased about. Um, I would think it would be great if he could show up other places. They have the Spider-Man animated film coming out in December, and although they haven't been specific about it, uh, I'd be thrilled if Miguel showed up in that. It just seems like a really cool, it's always been such a cool story and you even can work Punisher 2099 in there as well. It just seems like it could certainly carry its own. I agree. Now as you look at your table here, Peter, you've got not just comics, but you've got novels and scripts as well, specifically for Young Justice. So when it comes to, as a writer, when you're approaching writing, say a comic or a novel or a script, is there a difference for you or is it kind of all the same? Writing is writing to me. I don't really change what I write depending upon the narrative. I do have to accommodate the formats of it. Animated scripts, for example, have to be no more than 32 pages. And they have to have specific page breaks uh, for commercial interruption. So um, comic book scripts are... Uh, nowadays 20 pages and I break them down panel by panel and I have that scripting. Novels are great because I can just write. I mean if I'm doing a comic book and I have two people who are staying in a hallway talking, I have to come up with ways to make that interesting on a visual basis. In novels, I can have two people sitting in a room and have them talking for 15 pages and no one's going to be upset with that as long as the talk is interesting. Before I let you go, Peter, are you going to be involved in the resurrection of Young Justice at all? That's a very good question. I can't tell you. Now, if on the other hand I was not going to be, then I could say no, I'm not. So deduce from that what you will. Take from that what you will. It's Peter David live from Tidewater Comic Con. Thanks for taking a few minutes. Thank you very much. Like you heard from the man himself, take that for what it's worth. And does that mean that Peter David will in fact be involved in the Young Justice Outsiders series on DC Universe? 
I think that there's a very good chance that that is the case, and that is very, very good news if you're a Young Justice fan. That's going to do it for Nerd News, the Tidewater Comic-Con edition this week. Up next, I'm going to talk to Dave Fielding about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, talk to Eric Donovan as well, and my final thoughts on Tidewater Comic-Con are up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Karen Ashley from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Getting ready to round out our coverage of Tidewater Comic-Con 2018 here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And it's really a hometown show for us. I mean, we've been to every Tidewater Comic-Con since the very beginning. It started out in a hotel in just a couple of little conference rooms. And it's grown now into taking up the entire convention center and having guests like Matt Ryan and Greg Sipes and so many more. And one of the things I love about Tidewater Comic-Con is getting to see friends that I've made over the years at the con every year. You know, sometimes you don't always have time to hang out with your friends. But this is a place where we can get together and see each other, especially friends from out of town. Like a guy like Eric Donovan, who's been a friend of the show for a while now, ever since we were part of a panel that he was involved in in Tidewater Comic Con a couple of years ago. Got a chance to moderate that with him. He's a great guy. So finally, I realized we haven't actually had him on the show yet, so I finally got a chance to steal a couple minutes with Eric Donovan. Let's hear what he had to say. Tidewater Comic Con 2018, and a familiar name you might remember from a couple of years ago, actually, because we are actually part of a DC panel with this guy. It's so exciting to talk to him again, Eric Donovan. Eric, what's up, man? Hey, how are you? Pretty good. Now, for anybody that's watching this on video, you're actually sketching John Constantine. Again, you got to work on a couple of Hellblazer books not too long ago. So do you get? Do you still get asked a lot about that? Yeah, I do. I mean, he's such a popular character regardless. Um, and that run was is still sells pretty well. It's still a pretty popular run. So I definitely, usually at every show, have at least a couple people drop by dressed as John and want to, you know, say hi or talk about it. So, What's the thing you love about the character the most, do you think? Uh, honestly... I think it's super badass to like smoke a cigarette all the time. And it's stupid and it's really unhealthy, right? We all know that, but um, what's really cool about it to me though is he does it and it has this like cool sex appeal type thing. Uh, like almost that rock star or whatever. But it's he he always has like that little bit of fire always with him ready just in case he needs to cast a fire spell. And I just think that's badass. Like that's there's a very practical element to his cigarette. It's not just for looks, it's not just for it's actually for his magic. Uh, so yeah, that's probably just like a little thing about him that I just think is really cool. One of the books that you've had from Boom actually is Eugenic. Of course, you had Cognate, Cognate before that and Mimetic before that. But, dude, Eugenic blew my mind. So when you got the script for that, and it's like, so in the first issue, we're going to just kind of melt people. How do, you, how do you react to that? And as an artist, how do you approach that? Uh, I was thrilled, frankly. I think I wrote James. I might have just put it on Twitter. I don't remember. But I was basically like, you know, thank you, James, for giving me like five pages of people melting. Like, that's just so fun to draw. I love drawing super gory stuff. And so, you know, most of the, the earlier part of that book was a lot of setup, a lot of talking and everything like that. So that was where you finally get to be like, you know, guys, this is a horror book. 
Like, right. here's some serious body horror for you. So that was really exciting for me. <laughs> One more before I let you go. You're a huge Swamp Thing fan. I can't let you go without asking you about the new Swamp Thing live action series that's coming. We're excited. There's a new book coming as well. Right. So what are your thoughts, man? Where do you want them to go? Uh, I, I, I want to see what they present us. I'm happy with, you know, just getting to see him on screen, hopefully looking amazing. And, uh, you know, hopefully get some new thrills and twists in there, so. Absolutely. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. That's Eric Donovan, E-R-Y-K, in case you're trying to find him. Eric, thanks so much for taking a few minutes, man. Thank you, James. If you happen to see Eric Donovan at a con that you attend, don't walk, run to the dude's table. He's such a talented artist. And if you want a commission of something very unique and cool, he will definitely be able to give that to you. We wandered over to the celebrities section to talk to David Fielding, of course, who's the voice of Zordon on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Wanted to get his perspective on the show, and I thought he had some great insights. Listen to what he had to say. Tidewater Comic Con 2018 is on, and one of the voices that you're going to recognize if you're a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers fan, is the voice of Zordon himself, David Fielding. David, how's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you? Doing really well. Now, when it came to the Power Rangers and you were doing your Zordon, you're this all-present being. Was there a particular voice that you were kind of going for when you were doing the role? Uh, actually, uh, I used the voice that I auditioned to to win the the role with. I mean. Uh, when they brought me in to do the audition, they basically described Zordon as being this uh, interdimensional being that was trapped in a time warp, and he was a 10,000-year-old wizard. So I tried to imagine what somebody like that might sound like, and the image that kept cropping up in my head was like Zeus on Mount Olympus. Nice. And uh, so that's, that's basically what I tried to go for, and that's what ended up on, on the screen. So what is it, do you think, about this original Power Rangers series? What made it kind of stand the test of time? Because people still love it. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's it it's very positive as far as, like, uh, diversity and including everybody. And it doesn't matter who you are, what, you, what your favorite color is, what your skin color is, what your background is, your, your gender. It doesn't matter. It's like anybody can be a Power Ranger. And... Um, I think it speaks uh, to every generation that um, they could be a part of it, and I think that's why it stands the test of time. Do you think the show was a bit ahead of its time in that regard? Uh, I do. I do think it was uh, right on the cutting edge as far as like saying, this person from this background is included in the show. This person from this background is included in the show, and it wasn't. It wasn't about the violence or, or the action. It was more about, you're my friend, and I'm going to stick by you no matter what, and we're going to make through it through this together. And I think that's what the show is all about. Now, in the Boom Studios comics that they have right now for the Power Rangers, Tommy Oliver is now evil. It's Lord Draken. So would you have kind of, if they were to turn one ranger evil, is that the one you kind of would have figured? Well, I mean, when you, when you look at the history of Tommy Oliver and the arc that he went through from the beginning, from, you know, sort of like being tricked into being evil and embracing that that power and then being strong enough to reject it and then you know taking on the mantle of the white ranger i mean tommy is a very heroic character and so the boom comics have you know this genius aspect of the tommy oliver from a different dimension is the lord draken that comes in and removes Tommy in this dimension and then starts eliminating all the rangers throughout so I think it's a very very brilliant um, 
take on what is possible in, in, in the Power Rangers universe. Now, David, before I let you go, is there one aspect of Zordon's character or something that you always wish that you got a chance to do on the show that you never got a chance to do? Yeah, I wish they would have brought him out of the two. Yeah, uh, there's that. There's that. I, I think it would have been nice to, uh, you know, to have... I mean, but on the other hand, that's a very unique quality of Zordon as a mentor because if you look at any other mentor character from any other show, they, they do come in with a sort of hands-on helping aspect, and Zordon never did that. And that's a, a great lesson, I think, for kids. It's like, listen, I'm here for you, and I will support you whenever for you, but you need to take your power, your responsibility, and solve this issue for yourselves. And so I think, I think that's a very unique take that a lot of people don't, don't pick up on. So uh, on one hand, I wish they would have brought him out, but on the other hand, I think it's great that they didn't. So. How are you enjoying Tidewater Comic Con so it's far? great so far. Yeah, I love it here. It's the voice of Zordon himself, David Fielding. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. And as always, may the power protect you. I mean, if anybody would have insight on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, it would be Zordon himself, right? Thank you so much to David Fielding for taking a few minutes to talk with me at Tidewater Comic-Con 2018. And all in all, I thought it was another great show, great triumph by Mike Federale and everyone involved at Tidewater Comic-Con. There's plenty of space to move around. There were a couple nice, very open areas that you could get into, especially I thought the Celebrity Zone was very well done. Everything, the prices were marked very, very clearly at the front of the lines. Everything seemed to move smoothly. It didn't seem like there were any jam-ups at any lines. I thought that was very much improved from last year to this year. I thought they did a good job with that. The only the only thing that I hope comes to future Tidewater Comic Con is a numbering system for where the tables are. Like, here's the 900 section. Here's the 1,000 section. So uh, you do get a floor map, and you do kind of find your way around, but if you had a way to see that somehow from a distance and be able to get right to your favorite artist's table or get to your favorite vendor's table or something you know you want to find, like more comics or more pops or something like that, you use your map, and then you get a sign that you could see almost right when you walk in, or at least when you get into one of the clearings, and then you can say, oh, okay, that's where I need to go. That's really the only improvement I can think of that Tidewater Comic-Con might need to make. Everything else just run so smoothly, and it's just such a family-friendly con, seeing kids uh, you know, just enjoying themselves and not having to worry about people being crazy and stupid. I mean, Tidewater Comic-Con is very friendly atmosphere for families, or if you just love going to cons and talking nerd stuff, this is definitely the place to do that. So make sure you're looking at TidewaterComicCon.com. And hey, maybe I'll see you there next year. But for this week, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you to all the guests that joined me at Tidewater Comic-Con 2018 this year. I also want to thank my lovely photographer, also happened to be my lovely wife, Pam Witham, as well, for joining me and helping take the pictures. If you saw the picture with Mr. the Mr. T cosplay, that's her. That's my wife, Pam, and she does a great job with the photography for the show. We're out and about in events and helping promote the show. I want to thank her for that. If you want to find out more information on the show, you can always go to downandnerdypodcast.com. All the past shows are there, interviews, some videos and stuff like that. Actually shot a couple of videos at Tidewater Comic Con that should be up here pretty soon. And if you want to find us on social media, very easy to do that as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram as well. Remember this, whether you're at a con or not, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.